Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. I say as ever, but you've been on hiatus. As ever, right, yeah. You're back. <laughs> welcome back, sir. Uh, how 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 was the hiatus? It was okay. <laughs> it, it was kind of stressful. Uh-huh. Um, moving across the country is stressful. I, I would not recommend it um, unless you really need to do it for a good reason. But um, it's it, it's been good otherwise, apart from all the stress. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I heard you are already enjoying the the weather of your new climb. Oh gosh, it's so nice. Like, it's, it's been 70, 75 degrees ever since I got here, and it's lovely, and it rained, like, for, like, three days in a row, and it was great, and I was very happy. <laughs> Good times. Well, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of positivity, or things that we've enjoyed this week. Also, some less so, uh, the Brexit has been the big thing today, and just, <laughs> yeah. just watching some of the responses, um, just, I'm saying this right now, any of our listeners... You have this thing, it's called a vote, and when you vote for something, that's what you're doing. So if you, for example, didn't actually think that the UK should leave the EU, and you voted leave, you're a f***ing idiot. So for our American listeners, when your next opportunity comes to vote, please remember that you should vote for the things you want to have happen. And also... Inform yourself about the things you're voting for. Don't Google what is the European Union after you've already voted to leave it. <laughs> yeah, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I look I look forward to next week's last week tonight or this, or this coming weekend's last week. To, given, like, John Oliver's reaction to that horrible Ode to Joy video, uh, mm-hmm. I can't imagine his reaction, not to the exit, to, to the, the leave vote, but to the frightening number of people who have been interviewed on the news saying oh i didn't actually think we were gonna leave i would have voted to stay but i did vote to oh my god oh my god Noel. just anyways uh hopefully this is not something that americans will be experiencing experiencing the fall but i will say one of the highlights for me this week uh was watching the sit-in on the on the house floor how amazing is it that you can turn off the cameras, but C-SPAN is going to find a way to keep doing its job by using Periscope and Facebook. I, th- I thought that was so cool. No, it was very, very cool. It was very much like we talk about how like the first Gulf War was like the CNN moment because it's when everyone started paying attention to CNN. And now it's just like Periscope and Facebook Live to a lesser extent, because they also used Facebook Live when Periscope kind of cut out, um, had their moments of, all right, this is how we're going to get our news out to people. And this is a big kind of, and it's kind of a big deal for, to me, for C-SPAN to do something like this, because C-SPAN is very, like, here's what it is. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. And we don't really get in the way of anything. We just film it. We point a camera at it. Even though the cameras are controlled by other people, we just point the camera, and that's what we do. We kind of discuss it with phone call-ins, mm-hmm. but that's about all, that's about all we do. So I felt like this was kind of a weird intervention for C-SPAN to make by 
uh, broadcasting the uh, social media feeds. So, but it was a really interesting choice that they made, and I'm I'd love to know what their rationale for it was, considering like they're just again they're supposed to just be this thing that records and broadcasts. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly they felt that this yeah. was happening in the house, and their yeah. job is to broadcast what is happening in the house. So they were going to broadcast what was happening in the house, um, and I agree, it is a it is a political statement. Either yeah. way, would have been either to leave the cameras blank and say, "Hey, they turned the cameras off. We aren't in charge of them. We just show you what the cameras are sh- are filming." That would have, you know, been okay, fair enough. But it's a bit of a political statement to do that or yeah. to do what they did. So, uh, I do think it's very an, an interesting choice that they made and one that I wholeheartedly endorse uh and i also by the way would have said the same thing eight years ago when the dems turned the lights off on the republicans during their sit-in even though i didn't agree with the republicans (laughs) on that one i still think you don't need to turn the lights off don't be a dick Um, yeah but anyways um so that was a big part of my week uh any any other media uh or, or tv happenings for you this week well, you'll be you'll be happy to know that vinyl got canceled after HBO renewed it. Um, apparently, ten million dollars per episode was a little too much to spend on a television show. That is um, terrible. Yeah, <laughs> at least the episode I watched was insufferable. Maybe it got better. Right, I never, I didn't even watch it. Yeah, but yeah, that news came down today. Um, but it's also just a sign, I think, of HBO just kind of cleaning its house because they put in a new head of programming, uh, particularly for. Um, yeah, so they put in a new head of programming. So I think a lot of this, uh, especially at least on the drama side, is clearing things out mm-hmm. to start kind of fresh. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what their next slate is. Their next if like... they can pull it together. Yeah, I mean, they keep having production delays with that um, science fiction western Westworld. Westworld, right? Yeah. That's had some issues. So who knows? Yeah, because they're they're running short on on shows that aren't like they right now they have their fantastic uh back to back to back of game of thrones silicon valley and beat but aside from that and like girls it's kind of hard to think still. of scripted you know yeah scripted wise yeah yeah but anyways um the big thing that this week though uh in the twitter sphere is our fabulous listener carl made a gift for us Yes. That was so cool. Thank you, Carl. Very cool. My Vogon Poetry on Twitter uh, put together a Televerse gift. So that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, you guys should go check it out. Yeah. I retweeted it. It's very, very cool. Uh, we should embed it in the post or something, I think. Yes. I will learn how to do that so that <laughs> I can. <laughs> or you can just, like, embed You can upload it to Imager or something and, like, just embed that link i guess maybe you'll teach me it'll be it'll be good it'll be a good thing <laughs> um at the end of the show this week we're talking with friend of the show ryan mcgee from talking tv with ryan and ryan and of course he covers snl over at rolling stone um and many other places ryan's wonderful glad to have him back we're talking gallivant which let me get uh, my musical theater on of course another big story for me this week was getting shot out of hamilton tickets in chicago despite a uh a very significant effort on my my and my sister's uh, behalf. Like my sister was trying to get tickets for like four hours. We couldn't mm-hmm. get tickets to any show for the entire run that they opened up. But you know you can buy plenty of seats on StubHub if you want to pay scalpers. So 
<laughs> Yay. Anyways. Yay. Uh, let's, that's an unhappy musical theater thought. Let's have a happy musical theater thought. Galavant. That's coming at the end of the show. Um, but now we're going to take a break and come back with our week in comedy and reality. We'll be right back after this. I don't know what to do without you. I don't know where to put my hands. I've been trying to lay my head down, but I'm riding this at three. Last week, we had a very, very full week in comedy. This week, we have a tiny week in comedy. And yes, there are other funny episodes I watched. Yes, I watched Angie Tribeca. Yes, I watched uh, several other shows. But the ones that seemed like I we needed to set aside time to talk about uh, are just two of them. So I'm going to talk about the Jim Gaffigan show, The Calling. It had a season two premiere. And then Veep, Kissing Your Sister. Uh, before I talk a little Any Given Wednesday, which had its premiere on HBO, I, comedy, reality, I'm not sure exactly. It's a talk show. I'm not sure exactly where that falls. But then Nolan and I are going to dive in with OJ Made in America, uh, ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary. Um, that was fantastic. That's that that's the big one for me um, in, our, in our week in comedy and reality. So uh, before, before you were still moving across the country, you did not have a lot of time for these ones so i'm gonna go through them pretty quickly first of all jim gaffigan show have you seen any of this noel no um i i haven't watched tv land at all since i watched like half of the first season of younger mm-hmm. so i haven't seen any of this so tell me about it it's about uh well the main character is played by jim gaffigan and it's it's based on his life he's married he's got a bunch of kids um and the part the element of the show that is the most disgust I think is how much it incorporates his uh relig- his his faith into it. Uh I want to say he's Catholic. He's certainly Christian. <laughs> um I watched it at the very beginning of the week so it's a little hazy for me, but uh, it, it, he, like he's talking to a priest throughout the episode wondering and finding your calling and what if God, you know, told you what you're supposed to know what you're supposed to be and do and contribute to the world in this life and what if you missed it and you didn't hear it. Um, so he, like, gets a vision of Jerry Seinfeld, uh, which is how he realizes his calling is to be a comedian. Um, but then he find, he eventually goes up to to heaven and uh, finds out he was, no, he was supposed to be a good father. Oops. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to see such a clear and respectful incorporation of this part of one's life that is, for so many Americans, a big part of their life, at least once one day a week, if not more. Um, so to have that incorporated is, is just a very different feeling to the show. Um, yeah, because I'm trying to think. Can you think of another show, I guess The Real O'Neills, but other than that where characters regularly interact with Faith on a, on a comedy? I'm making a thinking mulling face and a nothing immediately expression. is coming to mind. Yeah. 
Um, I, I I don't know. I think it's interesting, and um, I I didn't I wasn't laughing as much as I would like to be laughing. I sort of was just enjoying my time with the show, but not enough to make this appointment viewing. But I just appreciate that um, Gaffigan is doing something different with his show rather than just the traditional comedian gets a show. It's about his family. They have a bunch of kids and of different ages, whatever. I think the choice to have all the kids be young, you know, pretty much the same range of ages, and they're all younger, um, and really focusing much more on him and, and his wife a bit uh, is an interesting choice. So I like that he's doing something a little different, even if I don't plan on setting aside time for it. So glad I checked in on the Jim Gaffigan show. Um, certainly it'll be for some people. I don't know that it's it's certainly it's not a point viewing for me, but I'm sort of happy it's out there, you know, for whatever that right. means. Um, yeah. Veep had one of its funniest episodes uh, certainly all season, maybe ever this week, Kissing Your Sister. It was hilarious. Like, Noel, I was giggling out loud at the thought of some of the scenes in this episode. Like, every character gets at least one hilarious line of dialogue or moment. Um, there's, a, there's a cutaway to Richard, who's a very distinct character, um, doing gentleman of japan with his gilbert and sullivan group okay. uh, which includes danny chung who is a recurring figure from previous seasons played by randall park who hasn't been in the show for like a season and a half <laughs> just like <laughs> they don't mention it wherever just so they cut away to his gilbert and sullivan group and oh i guess danny chung is in his gilbert and sullivan group okay that's kind of amazing um the there was <laughs> this this like i I laughed so much at the very last tag of the the episode, which shows after the um, very precise and meticulous character has been shown lining up books on the bookshelf with a ruler to make sure they're all equally spaced and lined up and precise. And you see him doing that a couple times through the episode. The very last shot you get is one of his coworkers like g- giggling to himself and maniacally like put punching in each book a different length different no in the that's not okay don't do that <laughs> it was hilarious because i can i can like relate so strongly to both impulses both <laughs> the tidying and the maniacally like just screwing with your buddy to putting and pushing them all in different ways but like what they do is they take they've been they've been teasing uh selena's daughter Catherine's uh documentary she's been filming all season they've been teasing it all season by having her keep getting kicked out of rooms or um different people saying terrible things on camera um and then them then her the the mom saying okay you can't use that uh, so this episode was the the documentary she's been filming and so it was this combination of some of the scenes we'd already seen earlier from the the season but like extended a little bit or um uh, shot from a different angle. There was new material. Um, there, you find out that the the they're gonna fire one of the main characters. They're gonna fire the the comms, uh, the guy, like the CJ Craig of the show, Mike, because he's incompetent. Um, and, and so it's just, there's I can't even. There's some really great payoffs to things that happened earlier in the season that were funny when they happened earlier in the season, you realize they were also setting up a payoff to subvert that in episode nine, which it's just, it's, is really very, very well done. But there were also some uh, more really touching moments we got from Selena. You find out that Selena decided she was going to go into politics when her dad compared her to Nixon as a child, because nobody liked Nixon, but they respect him. And that's like <laughs> you. <laughs> um, so it's just like, there's this, this really rich, 
uh, density of character moments and humor and slapstick and like the one of the funniest lines of profanity which then the camera pulls back and you realize that the character said this in an elementary school surrounded by children as he's being like beat by his campaign manager who manages to like verbally assault him while physically assaulting him without swearing because they're surrounded by children oh my mm-hmm. god it's so, it was so it was so funny and all like, i gave this one an a over at the av club and uh i just and it's something i talked about a little bit last week sometimes when you're writing a review or something you go in and you're sort of middling on it and then as you write yeah it, you figure it out you realize how like you didn't think you felt strongly about it but then as you write you you get you know more and more um oh well oh, I guess I didn't like that that thing, or I didn't like that thing. Or For me, this one, I went in liking it, and then as I was writing about it, I just, it made me appreciate it more and more and more. So I just, I like, I think back on, on shots and moments in this episode, you can hear it, I just start laughing. Um, yeah. So I, I, and again, it used the entire cast in a way that most of the episodes this season haven't. Um, uh, and so I really appreciate that as well. It was hilarious, and I look forward to watching it again soon. Um, like, Noel, one of the characters they asked if his, his, of course, Selena's mom had died earlier in the season. They ask him, uh, "Oh, do, or, do you have any of your, or are any of your grandparents uh, still alive?" And he goes, "Oh no, my grandparents are all dead." Wait, no one, one or two of them might be alive. <laughs> like these people are terrible. It's hilarious. I've done uh, that before. Oh, yeah, forgotten, you know, how many grandparents of yours are living. Um, just tip of the hat. No matter what happens in the last episode. Oh, and I haven't even mentioned Selena lost the vote. Uh, so she, she, the other person didn't win either. So it's nobody was elected president with their electoral tie uh, okay. when, they, when they sent it to the, the House. So now it goes to the Senate. Um, okay. And so the, the vice presidential candidate, the Hugh Laurie character, is is very beloved in the Senate. So he's basically going to pick what happens. So um, the we'll see what happens. They're not providing a screener for the finale. So uh, clearly they're concerned about spoilers or something getting out, um, which tells me it should probably be an eventful last episode. But no matter what they do, this was a really, really strong episode. And it's been a very strong season. So tip of the hat to Veep um, and to David Man- uh, Mandel or Mandel taking over the season. Uh, good job, sir. Uh, less good job to Bill Simmons, with any given Wednesday, I don't. Okay, so I watch this one. I don't care about sports a lot. I enjoy watching sports. I enjoy playing sports, despite how terrible I am at them. Um, but this, I don't. Ha- I know a lot of people love Bill Simmons and have a really strong affinity for him, uh, from his other things he's done, from his podcast, from Grantland, all of that. But just this on its own. I really did not like it. I did not like him. I actively wanted to stop watching after about two and a half minutes. Um, so this is just, this is not for me. And if you like Bill Simmons, you might really like this show. But I just found the whole, like he was interviewing Charles Barkley and he wouldn't stop talking over him. He would ask him some of these interesting questions. And then as soon as he started to answer, Simmons would like sense a whiff of BS in his answer or not necessarily like the direction he was going or these are clearly conversations they've had previously you know so then he starts jumping in it's like but the camera wasn't here when you had your previous conversations so we don't know what you're interrupting him from saying so it's just I want to hear the answer to the question that you asked 
why ask the question if you don't want to hear the answer? Um, so there was some of that was really frustrating for me. Uh, people will like the, the Ben Affleck interview sort of went viral this week. Um, where that was another one where it felt very much like this is a conversation these two people have had. He brought Simmons brought Affleck on to have this deflate gate conversation because he knew like they've talked about this. He knew how strongly Affleck felt. But again, they just he just goes off on a rant and you can tell when you're watching it that it's like part two or it's like it's, it's like, oh, don't get me started again. You all have heard me talk about this before. But this is the first episode of your show. Bill Simmons, don't assume we've all heard Ben Affleck talk about this. Don't assume we've all heard you talk about this. You have to give a slight precursor to it. You have to, like, show... You have to show your guest... Help your guest ramp up to the passionate screed that they have. Don't just... Like, I don't know. I just... It really... It it didn't... It it was very... uh, Frustrating to watch. Because they just start saying, and they're referencing things that if you followed Flakegate really closely, you know what they're talking about. But if you didn't, you're like, oh, I'll tune in. I hear that Bill Simmons is a really smart guy. I'll check this out. Useless. You're not going to know anything. There's a way that you can, you can, like, inject these, like, tiny little, like, not even full sentences to say what, to, to like, contextualize some of the different points that you're referencing. Um, and they don't bother doing that. So for me, having a overall awareness of this topic, but not knowing some of the specifics, I think that uh, like like I was I was able to follow everything, but I couldn't invest emotionally in it because they went from completely dispassionate conversation about directing to a hundred you know a hundred and eighty degrees the other way. Um, like immediately so that I just think it wasn't well managed and and certainly like he didn't do a good job of managing that interview and, and building it to where it was gonna go um I also think that Ben Affleck brought up some really great points but though and, but then Simmons didn't like tie it connect that like identify that and like key into that and tie it in like he brings up at the very end like we we're so obsessed with this deflategate thing but we've got an uh the talks about the rampant domestic violence uh you know situation in the nfl we don't, and he just sort of mentions that in passing instead that could be could have gotten a little bit more time and drawn that in and shown the hypocrisy of the way that these two things are balanced in the priorities of the of the nfl but they so it just for me it felt like missed opportunities it felt like poor management and it's certainly not something i'm interested in in following up on based on this maybe it'll get a lot more interesting because i don't need to be an expert in a topic to want to listen to it. i listen to i just started listening to freakonomics podcast i know nothing about economics but i'm learning because right because i i don't know about it i want to learn about it i would love to know more about sports so i can hold more conversations with people um but this is not going to be the show that helps me learn about it or that that allows me to participate in the conversation or even sure. observe the conversation. It locks me out of it. The other thing that I just can't not mention is the sexism of Bill Simmons that pops up here and there. Uh, so, like, he's referencing child stars being weirdos. And he references Macaulay Culkin. He references uh, Michael Jackson. And he references Lindsay Lohan. With Lindsay Lohan, they show eight photos of her looking crappy. I think there are several mugshots in there. With Macaulay Culkin and Michael Jackson, one each, uh, and no mugshots. 
Certainly not for Michael Jackson. Uh, and then later, uh, they reference Steph Curry losing control, including, quote, he even, even losing control of his wife on Twitter because Mrs. Steph Curry tweeted something. And so apparently she he was supposed to control his wife so she couldn't express her opinion on Twitter. So just like little asides at that, I was just like, oh, I already didn't like you, Bill Simmons. Yeah. But you're just ensuring that I never watch your show again. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not as virulent sexism or misogyny as I'm sure is out there in many, 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 many places. But the fact that that is just like nobody said you should not use the word control your wife, control his wife when you're talking about someone. That's that's a terrible thing to say. Like you should reword that if you really feel the need to include this Bill Simmons. That just shows that they're lacking um, any sort of awareness in their in their editing and in their writing over there at that show. So, uh, yeah. Not for me. Any any interest at all in any, I mean, I know I just made it sound so appealing. No, but Right, no, I can't wait to, you know, down, legally download this episode and watch it. No, I wasn't particularly interested in this anyway. Um Simmons has never been interesting to me, and most of the people I know who follow sports far more closely than I do seem to really hate him. Okay. Which turned me off on the idea. Um and then Hollywood Reporter had a big splashy profile of him on like for a cover story and I just went oh that's nice Hollywood Reporter's doing another cover story on a persecuted white creator yay uh so that immediately made me even less interested than Mm -hmm. I already was and I just had never had any interest in this particular way and I don't engage with sports in a sustained enough way to want to listen to him talk about anything and i i never really liked reading grantland anyway um sad truth i never even really liked their television coverage very much and so yeah i just couldn't get into wanting to watch this and one question i had for you based on your conversation about it and a couple of other people discussing it was whether or not this just felt like a visual representation of his podcast I haven't listened to his podcast. You haven't listened to it. Okay. So I don't know. And, I, I've heard other people say that, but I yeah. yeah, I haven't listened to the guest report. Right. And so that makes me wonder about whether or not they just kind of went, oh, we'll just put our camera on our podcast and then, now we can show graphics like Lindsay Lohan mugshots. Mm-hmm. Yay. And if there was any, like, how much they just realized that they were on TV now mm-hmm. with this conversation as opposed to oh, well, we're just going to do the podcast, we'll have cameras, it'll be fine, as opposed to thinking about what the medium can do for you. Well, they have a very lovely set that they, a couple different well, that's good. for interviewing, um, that they that they use, they show off, they do other segments, like voiceover, sort of like uh, last week tonight, you know, they're in special okay. things. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a talk show. It's, it's only going to be so visual anyways. Right. But I, I would say that it had the I would I wouldn't be able to speak to how similar it is to you know tonally or or um, with the format to his podcast. But um, he certainly is not as he's not uncomfortable on camera. Obviously, he's got a lot of experience, but he's not as comfortable as some of you know when a lot of the comedians who are starting 
you know, their shows. And again, this is the first episode. It usually takes right. hosts a while, like a good while to settle in. So yeah. it might feel So maybe you should check different. back in a month. We'll see. I'm not feeling encouraged to do so. Uh, yeah, not feeling really feeling that. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah. what I do know about is OJ Made in America, the SBN 30 for 30 documentary. I talked a little bit about this last week. I've seen the whole thing. You've seen most of it. I I listened to you and Emily talk uh, last week, and I had watched like all four episodes in between watching Orange is the New Black, and when I listened to your podcast, I was just like, oh, I can save the fifth episode. We're not going to discuss it this week, <laughs> and I'll be fine. I can get to like this weekend when I've got some more time. It'll be great. And then you're just like, hey, we're going to talk about it. I'm just like, no, I haven't watched the fifth episode yet. But uh, I won't talk the about the fifth episode then. We'll- yeah, but the, fourth, the four episodes I watched were all fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really great. And, and, and it, again, it just keeps building as you mm-hmm. go. Um, the way, the fact that they don't at a certain point just make it all about the trial, uh, I think is really smart that they keep reminding you of the context of different elements of you yeah. know, different people, um, di- like the different people involved. And what really struck me, because I went back and watched a couple of the episodes again. I was watching it with my family. And, um, the first time you're watching, at least for me, I was just going, oh, my God, this is like, this is amazing. This is so well done and so interesting and fascinating. And, everything. and then the second time you're going through it, for me, at least it was a lot easier to think more about the perspectives of each talking head. So, mm-hmm. for example, the first time you see Mark Furman is when he's saying, well, if the cops could have choked, used a chokehold the Rodney King beating wouldn't have had to have happened. And you're like, Oh, Mark Furman, <laughs> fuck you so much. Uh, you know, like, and so like thinking about like when they choose to deploy certain figures in the trial yeah. and how they first introduce them to the, like introducing him to the audience that way is a really strong way to introduce. And by the way, this guy's going to come into play in a big way. And you know that, you know, his name, you probably saw the show on FX, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't paying attention at the time when the trial was happening. Uh, but in case you aren't sure who this guy is, we're going to introduce him saying chokeholds are good and would have stopped the Rodney King beating. Um, yeah. So for me, it was really interesting to think like the way that they kept, you could tell it didn't feel like at least they were censoring any of their talking heads. And they're just showing all these different opinions and cutting back and forth between different uh, jurors, those two different jurors that they interview quite a bit, and the, they get very distinct perspectives and contradictory perspectives on the the jury's process and how they came to the ruling they did. And I just thought it was really very well handled. Yeah, it's a very good example of a kind of investigative documentary style that has a very distinct point of view for sure and as most documentary as almost all documentaries do have a very distinct point of view and a construction of reality that they're trying to convey and like you said the deployment of talking heads and the Furman example is a really good one about how they're setting that stage for a lot of stuff and that tells you a lot about what their agenda is And I think that's really significant. Um, But I think for me, the larger thing that I really took away from it was the fact that they spent so much time with OJ prior to the trial, like mapping his career, 
through college, through endorsements, through the through the, his time in the um, NFL. I almost said NHL for some reason. I don't know why. Um, so through the NFL and all this stuff that kind of builds up this mentality to maybe try and explain something that no one's really been able to explain um, about how this happened and how he felt fairly confident that he would be acquitted and was very clear on his innocence as well. And just how he became kind of enshrouded within this group of people and within his own mentality. I think it was really, really significant and really, really interesting to watch. And it becomes a really nice, like, counter, or not counter, but, like, companion piece to American Crime Story, which is so hyper-focused on the trial. And you still get certain aspects of this that draw enough from um, Tobin's, Jeffrey Tobin's book, um, who's also talking head in one of the documentaries, in this documentary, I should say, that it just, it, it, both texts end up enhancing one another in really fascinating and interesting ways. And if you told me like 10 years ago that two of the best shows from this year would have been b- about O.J. Simpson, <laughs> I would have just been like, no, there's not going to be a thing. But it both both the uh, 30 for 30 and the American Crime Story are just such stark ways of looking at American culture that you can't get over how... Like, celebrity culture was such a big part of American Crime Story, but here in the Made in America, and the Made in America, I think, is a very purposeful choice for a title, is just how much of this is just ingrained within American society and culture. So things like sports sports endorsements and product endorsements and contracts and just all those sorts of things that feed into the American capitalistic um, society but also deal how that deals with race and class and that sort of thing is really, really interesting and really, really fascinating. Um, I think the only thing I have about it is that, and maybe the fifth episode corrects this and you can tell me whether or not it does, is that I don't know that it gives the same amount of rigor to sexual violence and domestic abuse that it gives to that kind of, this is how race and class works. And this is how sports and media intersect with those things. And it can't figure out language to talk about that in the same way it managed to do for everything else beforehand, which I thought was interesting. And in a number of ways, frustratingly appropriate, considering the fact that, like we had discussed with American Crime Story, that um, Goldman and Nicole both felt like background players eventually within their own murder trial and even here even as prominent as nicole is in a lot of instances she still feels very much like a background player because so much of her story is tied to this issue of domestic abuse and they can't figure out a way to talk about domestic abuse in a way as as thoughtfully as they talk about class race and capitalism basically um, does the fifth episode address any of that? Or is no. that just going to be like a fault line within this documentary that they just don't care? I don't want to say they don't care, but they don't invest as much time yeah. in it. 
Yeah, well, it's like when you're watching American Crime Story, you get to the episode Marsha, 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 and it's all about how gender plays into the trial in a really significant way. And there's that little bit they get us um, in, I want to say it's episode four, um, might have been episode three, talking about how they, you know, they show these uh, pictures of Nicole all beat to crap and the jury just doesn't care. Right. The jury blames her and not him, um, or doesn't see how they're related. And yeah, they, sh- there's discussion about how it's not really related. How it doesn't matter. Yeah, and that's about it. That's about all we okay. get. I, I whereas, and I hadn't even that hadn't occurred to me. But you're absolutely right. I would have loved to see the same curiosity about women's role um, in in the home and in the workplace and in like perceptions of 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 you know where of of where domestic violence was talked about not talked about um and certainly like we get again you also get a little bit of how the the jury was um reacting to Marsha they give you a little bit yeah. about that but in no the fifth the last episode is mostly about the verdict and then the fallout of that and then afterwards um, following OJ like up through his arrest for the you right. know, much later, so um, it, it's yeah we that's just something that that they don't really talk about. So so while they take such f- careful um, attention, they pay such careful attention to race and class and celebrity. Uh, they really don't to gender. You'd think at least the what sort of people expect with domestic abuse is if somebody hits one partner they probably hit all their partners but there's no investigation of that there's no like you think there should be a history of battery either before or after but that never comes up um there's very little time spent on oj's like what he saw modeled for him as a as a kid like where he would have picked, and they, like every now and again they kind of hint at this thing that because his dad was gay, he had all these hangups about homosexuality, and so that this might have prompted him to seek right. out hyper masculinity. But they really they let the audience, but really they let the audience fill in the gaps on that. Yeah. Like you know, so that's more that's us fill you know like reading between the lines, and that's whereas the, right. the documentary does not in in any of these other areas, they very much go to the text for that so that would have been nice to see them really explore right it becomes like domestic abuse becomes just another instance of celebrity and sports privilege yeah and like you said it's implied but it's not really fully addressed and i get that this is and to head off like at the past like i get that this is an oj simpson story not a nicole brown story but it's very still very much about her mm-hmm. and her murder, um, regardless of whether or not like he did it or uh, Simpson did committed the murder or not. Uh, it's still it's still about the trials about her and all of this buildup that we get is about getting to this getting to this point where this murder is committed and he's put on trial for it. And just to have that swirl around and not have, like you said, the same amount of curiosity was just kind of startling and surprising. Well, startling and surprising given the context of everything that had come leading up to this for me. Uh, But this isn't, 
it's a very I consider it a significant critique, but I don't consider it a fault of the documentary in any way. Like, it doesn't diminish what the documentary does. It's just one of those things where I go, you did everything else really well, but this just feels like something you're not interested in. And I wonder how much of that is symptomatic of some of the other things that are at play that the documentary is exploring. So this is a sports documentary on a sports network that is looking at a major sports celebrity figure and it just goes ah domestic abuse from an athlete right uh moving on type of thing like you were talking about with the simmons interview with aflac and the disparity over cheating versus the disparity over domestic abuse within uh the nfl yeah um it was it made that made me curious uh, it, while it's directed by uh, what I assume by the name is man, um, there are f- all the producers aside from the director are uh, based on their names are women. So you would think that there would be enough voices, female voices in the mix that that should have prompted more curiosity or discussion. Um, so apparently it's not a gender thing because like my first thought is this feels like made by guys for guys you know uh that that would be an easy explanation for why there's this like kind of gap but that's not the case so at least based on the producers so who knows but yeah i I do think that's that's an excellent point and something i will have to consider further but for now i know you have so many options here but what wins your week in comedy or reality um, I'll give a hat tip to this week's Andrew Tribeca, which I really enjoyed. Uh, Heather mm-hmm. Graham showed up as a woman who can have it all, including massive costume changes as a fight deems appropriate. Um, it was a really, really funny episode. Probably the first really, really funny episode of this season for me. Uh, so I really, really enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, but yeah, no, it's totally OJ made in America this week for me. Uh, just really, if I didn't, if I wasn't trying to finish as much of Orange is the New Black as humanly possible, I would have finished this. (laughs) Um, Mm. but this, this easily, uh, OJ easily won my week in comedy and drama, comedy and reality. Uh, what about you? Uh, well, I mean, OJ, but Veep. (laughs) Yeah. Because, like, Veep was amazing. OJ was also amazing. I gave it love last week. I'm going to give some love to Veep this week. Uh, but, yeah, that that episode, of, both episodes, really, this week of Angie, of Angie Tribeca, or at least the last two. I watched two this week. Uh, we're, we're really great. So uh, the Point Break one and the Heather Graham one, pretty fantastic. Really enjoying that season. Um, now we're going to take a break and come back with our weekend genre. With the sorrow in our hearts, we can play. And I look up to you And we hear different sounds Than the heartless do Wakeful at night Looking everywhere for you Why do I look up to you? This week in genre, we're going to kick things off with Adventure Time, the musical. Of course, you heard some of the music from that episode leading into this segment. Then I'll talk briefly about Game of Thrones, Battle of the Bastards, and Outlander Vengeance is Mine before Noel takes it away with Mother, May I Sleep with Danger on Lifetime, the new one. Sorry, Mother, May I Sleep with Danger? Uh, It's a question mark. I feel like that's 
important. Then I will <laughs> throw things over to Penny Dreadful, talk a little bit about the series finale, Perpetual Night and the Blessed Dark, before we round things out with the Purse of Interest series finale, Return Zero. First up, though, Adventure Time. How much do we love the musical? I thought it was so good. It was really good. Um, I was feeling, like, kind of worn out, like, when I got around to watching this uh, last night. And I was just like, I'll just watch it before we record. And I watched it right before I went to bed last night. And I went to bed so happy. Hey, uh, <laughs> this episode just is a delightful amount of fun. I was worried for like a split second we weren't going to get a lot of songs. Just for like a split second. Because the focus was very much about Finn being in this funk about breaking the Finn sword. And then we ended up getting songs. And then we got a song about like him hearing the song that no one else can hear and it was just so good and ice king is like the bouncer with the jacket and then the penguins with the jackets and just it was so good i had so much fun and i thoroughly enjoyed like that marceline's band is lsp and death (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it was it was it was awesome i like the different types of songs and the different approaches mm-hmm. i liked susan's song a lot too god susan was the best susan was pretty <laughs> sweet um but yeah it made me think of the thestrals from harry potter um it uh start, started book five um this notion of you can only hear this music if you're dealing with significant loss or you're innocent so that tells me bemo is hearing this music yeah. all the time which is, is right. a fun little little throwaway but no i thought i thought it was again like we keep complimenting adventure type 4 very mature very thoughtful very beautiful and can we talk about economy of time 10 minutes yeah 11 minutes and they do so much with that very short amount of time um yeah it was and this episode was like a little bit longer too it was like 13 14 minutes i think so but yeah and they're still doing a lot with very little yeah, and again, we, those, we got a number of songs, and they were all pretty great. Uh, I mean, Nestor and FP, come on, good times. Uh, do you have any- I, I loved FP's like outfit for that. Oh and yeah, I was just like how are her clothes not burning off? Magic, because the '90s realness is just you can't you can't burn it away. That's why. That's why. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on Adventure Time? No, no, this was this was a really good episode that I, I really needed this week, so I was very glad I got it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next up for me, Game of Thrones, Battle of the Bastards. Uh, very unsurprisingly, it's episode nine. There's a giant battle. Uh, it's between the two bastards on the show. No one's surprised. Um, the I thought it was I thought it was good, very good. I didn't think it was great. Um, I'm sort of, uh, it feels so kind of shitty to say this, but. I'm sort of over these giant epic battles because I've seen that before and I thought this was good, but I didn't think it was spectacular or amazing. I, this for me was no, the wall, this was no battle, uh, at, uh, on the black water or even, um, and this is something that of course he'll be on the show later, uh, in the podcast, Ryan McGee, friend of the show had tweeted out. I mean, those of us who watch Spartacus have seen some pretty epic, amazing battles on TV with no budget that are, infinitely more compelling um so i just i wasn't hugely compelled by this because we we knew what had to happen we knew that they weren't gonna kill Jon snow we knew that uh they weren't gonna have ramsey win um so something else had to happen so when 
Sansa comes in with with the the Knights of the Vale, and they rout uh, Ramsay's troops and everything. It was just a matter of uh, is one one gonna die? Um, is the giant, and unfortunately he does. Um, if is killed to keep the budget under check for next season, I would guess. But um, no, I thought I thought that there was spectacle here, and it was there were some satisfying moments. Having uh, Ramsey finally get killed, I didn't even care that he got eaten by his dogs. I was just glad that he was off the show now, so we can stop wasting time on him. And they they feel they make sure to remind you that he's evil in this episode, in case. You've forgotten? How? I know he's evil, and I don't even watch the show. How is that a thing that you're worried about people forgetting? And yet. Uh, just, it's just the... Yeah, some of the, just some of what happens is just... It's all very much what you expect to have happen. I, I also like the stuff we got with Yara and Danny. Um, the, you have to really fudge the timetable to explain how they got there so quickly. Game of Thrones fudging the timetable. Yeah. Don't say. And also Ooh. why, you know, Danny let her t- town get ravaged by, uh, Sons of the Harpy and all of her citizens get slaughtered like overnight. Cause she shows up at the end of the previous episode and it's dark outside. And then when she goes and shows down, uh, has the, like her talk with the masters, in, in this episode, it's like the middle of the day, and they've been laying siege to her city, and she just immediately owns them with her dragons. It's like, so wait, you could have done that yesterday at in the middle of the night when you showed up, but you're like, mm, I want it to have more effect. I want it to be in the middle of the day so that, you know, the people watching can really see my dragons be badass. So I don't care that they're slaughtering my, you know, citizens for hours and hours um yeah so there's just some fudging of that that i really didn't appreciate but on on the whole though uh satisfying if if very expected and we'll see how the season winds things out with their last episode there's a lot left to to kind of do something with like to move into a teasing for next season so i'm curious how they're gonna split their time but uh yeah solid but you know I'm spoiled for spectacle, clearly. Um, Outlander <laughs> uh, Outlander gave us a, a reason this week with Vengeance is Mine for why they had uh, Mary get raped. Um, or why the why that happened. It wasn't just random. It was an, a planned attack against um, Claire. And, uh, and so at least there's a reason for why it happened. It wasn't just like they happened to be the people who were... Uh, assaulted in the middle of the night but um and as satisfying as it is to watch them the 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 survivor like just stab her rapist to death and then Murtaugh to cut his head off and lay it at Claire's feet um I just I'm not as engaged in this part of the season I was much more interested in what they were doing in France than I am like the intrigue of that than the battles that we're seeing here. And I kind of would rather, it sounds like, I mean, we only have two episodes left this season. I doubt we're going to cut back to present or the modern, you know, the fifties um, before the end of the season now. But um, I just, I'm kind of waiting I'm in a stalling pattern because we know where she's going to end up. Cause we saw that at the beginning of the season and this part of the story is not super compelling to me. So um, really uh, still appreciating the performances and everything, but uh yeah, it, it's it's not quite lived up to my hopes for this second season, I would say, as much as I do still enjoy it. Um, now, speaking of hopes, you had a, you had high hopes, Noel, I know, going into Mother May Sleep with Danger. Um, the, tell me a little bit about that and also okay. whether or not it paid paid off. What did you think of Mother May Sleep with Danger? Sorry, Mother May okay, Sleep so- with Danger? <laughs> 
Um, so this is a, uh, let's say, significant reimagining of a 1996 uh, television film with uh, Tori Spelling and Ivan Sergei, both of whom appear in the remake, um, that deals with a college-aged woman who finds a boyfriend, um, and he actually has a secret shadowy past. Uh, he's very possessive. Uh, he murdered his last girlfriend and covered it up, and all sorts of things. So the danger is men, Kate, is the 1996 uh, message that men are a danger. Okay. <laughs> which is which is a good message. Um, and this aired on NBC, so this wasn't a Lifetime movie or anything. This was on NBC, um, even though I think it was originally supposed to like air, be in theaters, and it didn't, which is probably for the best. Um, so, flash forward to 2016, James Franco uh, naturally goes, you know what I need to do? I need to remake this television movie about the scariness of possessive men and turn it into vampires, female vampire coven." Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Um, and it's just, it's very much in that weird vein of, okay, we're gonna, James Franco decided to take some of his class reading from Yale or Columbia or wherever he's going to school right now for cultural studies and English and go, I'm gonna make a movie using my syllabus to discuss this. And it's kind of what he does. Like, there's a discussion about how vampires work within sexuality and media and fiction and just all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, he's, like, doing a send-up of Lifetime original movies. Like, he said he was inspired by that Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig, A Deadly Adoption film. Um, and I, and I go, but that was, but this wasn't even actually a Lifetime movie, even though now it airs on the Lifetime network. <laughs> but... It's still fun and campy and silly, but it's very still kind of bizarre and mixed up in like it's what its messages want to be. So like the vampire coven go after date rapists on college campuses, which is cool. Uh, they have no time for men who are roofing women to have sex with them, which is great. But then at the same time, I mean, there's just this lingering male gaziness to like some of the lesbian sex scene sex scenes within the, within it as well so it's very much kind of a have your cake and eat it too sort of situation and there's plenty of other just kind of bizarre stuff that he just tosses in so instead of being a track star the female protagonist is a theater major who uh, goes out for the leading role Macbeth and the vampire coven plays the witches and it becomes like this Lady, you have basically a Lady Macbeth still and a lady playing Macbeth. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, again, really interesting ideas, but, I mean, it all just gets, like, sexually charged and male gazy in a lot of ways that the show, that the movie tries to temper by having James Franco, who's directing the Lady Macbeth, um, show with a, like, female assistant producer or something who never really talks, but she's there watching it with him <laughs> as to soften it, I guess. But it's still kind of campy and silly. And I like this idea that it's like taking the stand against date rape. And there's still like a dweeby, I've been so nice to you, you should go out with me type of guy who ends up being turned into a vampire for some reason. 
by the female coven because they're upset with one of their members who hasn't turned the female lead into a vampire yet. It was all very convoluted is what I'm trying to tell you. (laughs) But I still, it was still just campy enough for me to enjoy it anyway. So if you're, if you manage to find it, I would recommend it. Um, Just for like the experience of watching James Franco earn another college credit. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Because that's, that's what I assume all his television and movie projects are are at this point or just college credits since he can't show up to class apparently there you go um but i've said all i want to say about mother may i sleep with danger um so but speaking of vampires yes and uh nice guys (laughs) who uh feel entitled uh, yeah penny dreadful had its series finale and surprise series finale. surprise series finale and um not only did we have vampires of course we have just all-time entitled nice guy uh dr frankenstein at least this this show's version of him um gets a lot in this in these two episodes and specifically lily gets a lot um he decides he's not going to brainwash her into being his idea of what a happy and correct person is who uh will adore him and not ask questions uh, because she gives an impassioned speech, and Billy Piper is fabulous at that. But again, it's just like I kept waiting. I was hoping that that all the threads would come together, and they don't. Um, the stuff with Dorian Gray and and Lily never fully ties in with um, with never ties in actually at all with what's going on with with Vanessa. Uh, they do literally bump into Doctor Frankenstein, so he joins the let's go kill dracula thing at the end because they bump into him at, at bedlam um so like it just, it's a bit of a mess uh i think there's some really effective moments and i actually really i liked the stuff they give renfield a lot to do in these last two episodes but for me it actually really worked because that performance i think was very very good um so even though because if, if i had known it was a series finale that would have cast some of this in a different light because we'd be like why are we spending no time in our two-part series finale with our main character who is Vanessa she's literally in two scenes maybe in these two episodes uh and yeah and I so I'm kind of dancing around something big which I'll get to in a moment here but um but yeah so that's very strange that you're gonna have what has clearly been the heart of your show um for three seasons for the entire run of it just be absent in your your final episodes Uh, i still didn't buy like i talked about last week her decision to embrace dracula and her turn to the darkness that kind of came out of nowhere for me i didn't think they earned it and i figured that they would kind of come back from that with this episode these episodes but then instead you've had plenty of time to stop your recording by now you stop your iPod or your various device, audio device. Spoilers coming! Instead, uh, she she chooses uh, assisted suicide, I guess. She asks Ethan to kill her um, because she knows that the darkness will never stop searching for her and she's tired and she wants it to be over, which is why she had given over to the darkness anyway because she couldn't fight anymore. Um which is fair enough. Okay, that's they do give her some agency in her death. She chooses to die, um, but because of her face, she can't kill herself. Um, so he, that's why he has to kill her. Um, but it does very much, and this is something that Ryan uh, McGee and Mo Ryan talked about on their podcast this week, talking to you with Ryan Ryan. It does very much fall into that damsel in distress 
mode. So her way of, of, of showing agency in the last two episodes is to say, please kill me. That's it. Like, she doesn't do anything else. She doesn't fight Dracula. She doesn't, you know, like she doesn't, the, the, she's shown such tremendous power um, over the course of the series and ability, like, to wield magic and to do all this other stuff. But she never does any of that. She just stands in a room in a white dress surrounded by candles. Um, and so it's a little bizarre to me. And something that, again, they brought up on Talking TV with Ryan Ryan that I thought was an excellent point is that this show has very much been about misfit families and not fitting in anywhere else, but finding other people who don't either and, and creating a family and finding support in that. And they really get away from that here. Um, by saying, no, maybe some, maybe you can't be happy. Maybe you can't find your, it's okay that you're a weirdo, but there's just no place for you in this world. You should, the best solution is sometimes to die. And maybe that's how they, the creator feels. And you know, that's, that's their, it's their show. It's their prerogative. I don't know if that was their intended message. Um, but I do think that the creator has a point that we have very specific notions of death as always tragic. Um, and I, that's what I think, but you know, maybe people could have different opinions. And so if he was trying to explore that and if that was his intended message, um, okay, fair enough. Uh, it's something different that you don't usually see. If it's not his intended message, then I think there's a significant disconnect. But, um, any, anyways, it's been a hell of a ride on Penny Dreadful. And I didn't even mention the creature. The creature had a thing he... You don't care about the I creature. I don't care about the creature. I don't care about the creature. I don't care about Dorian. I don't care about mm-hmm. Dr. Frankenstein. Um, Katriona got to be a bit of a badass. We never found out anything about her and who she is and where she's from, which leads me to think that this whole always intended as the last season thing doesn't really track because I think we would have gotten an explanation more of who she was if, if they did, never intended to have there be a next season. But, you know, who knows? Whatever. Um, I did, in the end, enjoy a lot of what we got this season. And uh, my question marks about the way that the season ended doesn't take away from my overall enjoyment of parts of it. Or, more specifically, the amazing Tour de Force performance that was Blade of, of, of Grass, which is the, the episode we talked about previously, or I talked about to you, Noel, <laughs> previously this season, um, which was just amazing a really great episode of television really terrific performances um from ava green patty lapone and uh, rory i want to say kinnear um that sounds right to me but i don't watch the show either. okay uh, <laughs> fair enough um so so uh, yeah i've never connected to the show like a lot of other people have so it's hard for me to feel as disappointed in it but uh i can certainly appreciate its strengths and i feel like that's an excellent way to to send us over to person of interest which had its finale return zero because i just again i don't care about a lot of the characters and the show this episode i just i didn't really connect with this i didn't really care about a lot of it but i can see how if you were very invested in finch or in uh in john then maybe this would be very meaningful to you so for me it wasn't but i like the stuff we got with shaw i care about shaw um like we like we had talked about previously i was not surprised that fusco made it out um he was always gonna make it out there was never any doubt (laughs) yeah yeah uh and so so yeah that's that's I, i thought it was fine um 
Yeah. I, I, the the stuff with um Root as the machine touching John and then touching and touching young John or whatever was a bit lost in Jacob for me. Yeah. But I agree. Yeah, on the whole, I, th- I thought it was fine. I don't know. I, it was hard for me to feel really strongly one way or the other about this one. How, how did it work for you? Well, I, I'll say two, I'll say positive things, and then I'll say kind of overall reaction is that even though I'm kind of Johnny come lately to the show, um, I still got kind of sniffly and a little a little teary um, after I realized that John and the machine had tricked Harold because um, I was just like. <gasps> type of thing uh so i was building a chair and i was i was starting to like kind of like tears were hitting the chair a little bit because it kind of got to me um and like you i enjoyed the stuff that we got with shaw and i like that the show set up a spinoff potential with shaw and and the dog and and bear who was really let's be honest here was the most important person to get out alive. Yes. Was Bear getting out alive was Obviously. really all we needed. Yeah. Um, so a set up, a spinoff with her and the dog, and then with the folks that we saw in the DC episode with the Secret Service, uh, could have just created a whole new show that they could have continued with had anyone wanted to do that, which obviously wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I like that they set that up, and I like the idea of the story continuing if they can find a way to do it and that sort of thing. And I love the idea of uh, um, Sarah Shahi being involved and that sort of thing. But uh, John makes a comment that it everything would kind of see anticlimactic, and he's absolutely correct. I mean, the episode's very kind of eh, as like a as so far as like a finale goes past like the emotional aspect of it for me, like on just a plot level of oh, we need to go put the virus inside the Samaritan to stop it from uploading to a satellite, but also there's a cruise missile that's going to kill off the two main characters. And I just kind of went, oh, wait, what? this is all a lot of convoluted stuff to happen so you can get to that ending that you want. That's fine. But don't try and sell it to me as like a big, big moment type of thing. Like the emotional stuff I think worked much better than the actual plot stuff worked. But it became a distraction from the emotional stuff when I'm just going through the logistics and steps and seeing the scenes, basically, of like, yeah, this this isn't, like, as entertaining as I kind of wanted it to be. And that's kind of frustrating. Um, but I... And it, it made me kind of go, well, I understand that you guys didn't want to drop the case of the week stuff. And I kind of applaud that impulse, but maybe you could have dropped the case of the week stuff. <laughs> Just to, like, do a bigger build. But I also felt like they cleared so much of the table in the previous episode that anything that they did was just going to be kind of, oh, computer hackery stuff. And that's never, no show makes computer hackery stuff really interesting. Yeah. So. It was very much, wait, after millions, right, of permutations. of The machine never winning. The machine wins this time because... Right? right? Did they say well, why? There's a there's the virus that's involved that gives her the edge. I'm assuming. Yeah, but still, you'd think that in what those simulations, that would be something that they could take into like. For me, there was no, there was nothing about this finale that had to happen then. That right. couldn't have happened. I think that's fair. At any point in the run of the show, after Samaritan was introduced, it was like, well, they had to get Harold to a point where he was willing to use the Ice Nine virus. 
Um, which I mean, it's, I don't know. I guess maybe somebody, maybe people think that that's a really clever name. Obviously, I read I read Cat's Cradle when I was in high school, so like it's like oh, it's Ice Nine. Okay, I get it. But like, if there was any like, why would he not use that Ice Nine virus? Because yeah. there was no ramifications anywhere else in the world. It's not like all of a sudden, like, buildings are on fire and the world is destroyed. And But it was worth it because we had to get rid of Samaritan. There there appears to be no fallout for why he couldn't have done that at any point in the show's run. That's a little disappointing. But, um, like I said, I, I didn't really care that much that right. there That's wasn't fair. a reason. Because, again, there the, the character stuff... Um, that needed to be there was there and the it was fun enough it was fun enough i like that we saw carrie preston again yes which is always delightful i like seeing carrie preston in anything so though i also like the idea in my head of uh harold shows up and she's like oh my god where the fuck have you been (laughs) you let me think you were dead i assume right dead uh for all these years and you're just gonna waltz back in and live happily ever after i get some say in this too okay in my head it's like he's gotta woo her and win her back and like apologize constantly for letting her think that he was dead you know um but that 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 can be its own wacky sitcom that i would watch (laughs) i'd absolutely watch so um but on the whole um I would I would also be super down for a spinoff with with Sarah Shahi. Uh, I don't I don't think it'll ever happen, but like Sarah Shahi and uh, Jimmy Simpson and like yeah. Can you imagine her dealing with Jimmy Simpson every week? Yes, and it would <laughs> yeah. be awesome. It would be so great. I've been waiting for Jimmy Simpson to get his own show for quite a while. Well, he had Breakout Kings for a little while, which he was ostensibly the lead of that ensemble. You sorry, sorry, you cut off in the middle there. So that's, it's okay. You have Breakout Kings? Okay, well, I'll have to go back and watch some of it then, because I didn't know who he was when that was airing. I must not have, or else I would have been like, sweet, a McPoyle series. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I, I'm i stalling here. I don't really have anything else to say. Do you have anything else to add about Person of Interest? No. No? no. Any final I thoughts? I mean, I really enjoyed the series overall, but... Um, I think the truncated season just didn't do them any favors, which is a weird thing to say about a show these days, is that the truncated season didn't do them any favors, since we're all suddenly about shorter seasons. But it's still a really strong, interesting show once they really established like their world and the premise, which is what they did in the first season. And then they just kept escalating in really interesting ways to me, for me. Uh, but not the strongest like outing, I think. Yeah, yeah, and and I just keep coming back to it's what some show just never clicked for me like it did for yeah. so many other people. And we're watching the same show, and we have similar yeah. taste in television, and we have yeah. similar plenty of other shows that we both really like. Whether it's you, you and myself, or or uh, you know, the first person to get me to watch the show was Todd Vanderwerf, who of course friend of the show, and you know, uh, hired me over at the AV Club. I think he's got pretty good taste in TV. Uh, got me to watch Sling and Arrows, which I adore, but. Yeah, a lot of people really love the show, and it just never connected with me. So I don't, and I don't know why. But at least we had some fun along the way. Uh, what wins your week in genre, Noel? Uh I'll give it to Adventure Time this week. Uh, just a really nice, sweet, uh, interesting little episode um, that just made me really happy last night. So I'll give it to Adventure Time. Uh, what about you? What won your week? Oh yeah, Adventure Time. I'm giving yeah. it to Adventure Time for genre. Absolutely. Uh, now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama. I'm gonna fly. 
base in the monitor this week in drama we're going to talk or i should say noel's going to talk a bit about uh greenleaf which premiered this week we have uh time to heal the baptism and we shall see him as he is then noel's going to talk some orange is the new black season four we're both going to dive in with american gothic which had its premiere on cbs arrangement in gray and black and then we'll round things up with unreal gorilla as well as just a little talk about season two so far uh, but first up is greenleaf and this is the the like mega church show on own right that's all that's all i know about this other than you told me keith david's in it so i'm like super excited just based on that should i be um yes i think so okay Um, i i mean this isn't like a home run type of series but to borrow baseball metaphor it's a very solid double okay up the middle i think um this deals with um a woman played by Merle Dandridge who's fantastic in this. Um she plays Grace Greenleaf, uh the uh, a woman from this uh mega church family who left her family 20 years ago uh in Memphis to basically strike out on her own. Was living in Phoenix. Her sister Faith dies. So she comes back for her funeral and just gets re-embroiled into the family basically kind of really standard type of premacy stuff uh but what elevates it a lot is not only dandridge uh but keith david and lynn whitfield who play uh james and may greenleaf who are the family heads um as this mega church leaders and it's a it's just a really compelling setting to be in uh so kind of like how we've discussed with the path and what you kind of discussed with the Jim Gaffigan show is that religion is very central to these people's lives. And it's very central in terms of faith and how they lead their lives, but it's also very central in like how they use power to get what they want and how they edge one another out. So one of the, um, the eldest son jacob his wife is basically kind of a lady macbeth type of figure who grills um grace at dinner over her faith and her religion to basically protect her husband also but also to look good in uh james's eyes basically and so she i mean faith is being deployed as a weapon and it's just very interesting to watch these dynamics play out it's virtually an all-black cast which is really compelling and interesting to watch still um and it's it's really it's just very interesting kate um the first three episodes are good first episode's kind of very cable piloty uh there are still like weird and the cable aspect is one thing i kind of return to is that it still kind of feels like a very early scripted cable effort in a lot of ways just in terms of aesthetics and that sort of thing uh, so where there are instances of really good visual flourishes, a lot of times things are just very flat. Um, which, again, I mean, this is own, one of Owen's 
first big scripted series. Like the first one is the, the haves and have nots from Tyler Perry. And they have another series coming out this fall um, called Queen Sugar. Um, and, but this, this is part of them venturing into scripted programming. And this is, I, ha- I haven't watched um, to have and have nots uh, at all, but this is a really good sign of their original programming development, I think. Um, so I would encourage you to check it out. I'd encourage listeners to check it out. It's really interesting. Um, the Bishop, uh, played by Keith David's dealing with a Senate investigation into basically tax dodging, uh, a common contemporary issue that is very much applied to mega churches and to really wealthy preachers, uh, pastors and that sort of thing, leaders of churches. And so there's just a lot of really interesting standard melodramatic things that are happening in this show, but they're all happening very well. And I'm really compelled by the performances, like I said, from Keith David, Lynn Whitfield, and uh, Meryl Dandridge are all three just really phenomenal. Uh, so yeah, I would check it out. I would check it out. Okay. I will check it out and we'll talk about it next week. Looking forward yeah. to it then. Excellent. Now, what I probably won't check, I'm just going to be honest, is Orange is the New Black season four because season I, four. I still have not gone back and watched the rest of season three. <laughs> Okay. So I'm like super behind. And whereas literally the first two seasons, especially the first season, I remember watching it. I was like in line. I was in Comic-Con and I was like making like a cave for myself out of like Comic-Con bags so that the light wouldn't be hitting my laptop while I was waiting in line. I was like burrowing in with my computer in the middle of, of a Hall H line trying to make sure I could watch like the entire first season, um, in line. Same as that, and Orphan Black were the. Actually, no, I think Orphan Black. Not it was that was the big one for me. Um, that when it first came out, like I could not get through the episodes quickly enough for me. With season after season two, in season three, as much as I liked the beginning of it, I didn't feel that impulse. Like I had to keep watching and I had to keep going back, which is why, frankly, I haven't. Um, based on what you were saying earlier in the episode. It sounds like you that at least for the, this season you had that where you wanted to keep get, watch as much as you can just keep coming back. Uh, now is this a continuation of that for you or a recapturing of that energy? Well, here's the thing: is like I'm not nearly on down as down on season three as I think a lot of people ended up being. Um, the general sense that I've kind of gotten when people were just like, "Orange is the new black" is back uh, with season four. I just went it. It went away? When when did we decide that? I mean, season three is very loose, structurally speaking, especially compared to season two. Um, and even compared to this season, which I think is a little tighter, um, structurally from a serialized storytelling perspective. Um, but I really enjoy that looseness. Um, and I think one of the big things that differentiates season three and season four, but also season one and season four. And it's more of a part of season two is that season three felt very much like a return to the, it's basically just a summer camp vibe. Um, especially with the ending of season three, uh, feels very summer campy. Um, and I understand that coming off the V storyline where you have this basically criminal kingpin coming in to turn Litchfield into a prison is and what we expect a prison to kind of be like why would you go back to the summer camp vibe and I feel like season four is very much even based on where the other way that season three ended up 
and I'm talking vague generalities because I don't want to spoil things for you, is that this season very specifically feels like a response to it's a summer camp. Why are, why are we having this kind of, why are we having these serious dramatic moments? It's just kind of a summer camp for these women that they have to go to. And this season very much feels like a response to that critique because in a very different way from V's arrival onto the scene in season two, the escalation into a real prison, a real, I'm using air quotes, a real prison kind of system is handled with much more interest in systemic issues, uh, much more interest in racial issues. and also much more interested in, and this was a part of season three that kind of, that played into things and then gets seriously satirized in this, which is the privatization of prisons, uh, is handled with a heavy sat- satirizing glove, and it's really, really great. And it's just, it's a very compelling season. And the storylines are gr- really within the prison itself are really interesting. Like this is one of the first times that I can remember where I'm just like, I kind of don't want any flashbacks and there are fewer flashbacks this season than there have been in the past. At least I'm remembering fewer flashbacks, but when they deploy flashbacks, the flashbacks are deployed really well and really meaningfully, which I think is really the most significant thing at this point in the show's run. And so yes, I'm very much pro season four. I'd encourage you to basically just kind of skip to the end of season three and just dive in for season four if you, if what I'm saying sounds compelling to you. And yeah, I, I'm trying not to avoid anything else uh, except to say that episodes um, 11 and 12 really kind of fucked me up um, in really emotional ways. And really like they just kind of went whole hog on something and I really applaud them for doing that and it was a very big thing um my only my only reservation about Orange is the New Black based on this season and based on the fact that there are still two or three more seasons to go is that they still have two or three more seasons already locked in and I'm not quite sure what the show does from this point um, because anything else is just, I'm worried about repetitiveness of escalation because I'm not quite sure what they can keep doing to differentiate things from this season. The season feels very much like a tipping point for the show in a number of ways. And I'm not quite sure where they go from here. I'm really interested to find out, but I have questions about what this show is going to look like in another two seasons. And I get a little bit antsy about this. Uh, my friend... Our friend, friend of the show, Corey Barker, came on, uh, did a piece over at Complex about whether or not this is going to basically turn into weeds, where you had a really good couple of seasons and then you just kind of kept going and you didn't find anything really good to say after you just kept going. Um, So that's a a definite concern. But season four is just really, really good. And I'd encourage you to check it out. I'd encourage people who maybe kind of dropped it to come back and see if it was still clicking for them. Okay, fair enough. And that is certainly, uh, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, because like, I I didn't not like season three when I saw of it, but I just never felt the need to go back and watch it. But 
season three, I understand, can feel really inessential. Just based on its structure, its very episodic approach to telling its stories. And I understand that. It really worked for me personally, but I understand people's response to that. So I'll have to put this down as well to be another one that I get back up to speed on. If only so I can be in the conversation. uh, Because as I understand it... uh, there's a certain cast member who's going to be on You're the Worst next year. Very excited. Yes. But the reason she's going to be on You're the Worst next year is not a happy one. So uh, that's going to be tough. But anyways, uh, gonna, instead of dancing around that, let's talk about a show we can both discuss. And that's American and Gothic. And spoiled endlessly. <laughs> yeah, which had its uh, premiere. Now, American Gothic, I just go to the other American Gothic. With Gary Cole and Lucas Black, baby Lucas Black, uh, also on CBS. What did you think of, of this? It's a, it's a rich family um, that is high profile in the community, uh, and there's intrigue behind every door, including the fact that the Potter Familius uh, may or may not be a serial killer. What do you think? Let's put intrigue in air quotes, Kate. Because there's not intrigue anywhere in this show. You weren't intrigued? I was not intrigued by anything that was happening in American Gothic. Um, It was really frustrating to watch this because here's a collection of actors who were all pretty darn good, including like... Anthony Starr from... Yeah. Yeah, like Anthony Starr, I know a lot of people love from Banshee. Um, I... There's Virginia Madsen, who's great... Um, Jamie Sheridan just, in this Jamie like, Sheridan, one episode. One episode, but good for Jerry, Jamie Sheridan for getting out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, we have Justin course, Chatwin. Yeah. We have the lead who we know from Jane the Virgin. Right. And she's she's still really good here. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just, it's really, it's really, really boring. And it really wants you to feel like there's really a big mystery here about which member of this family was a serial killer like eight years ago. Was it the estranged son who shaves his beard with a hunting knife? Or was it the father who just suddenly died? Or was it the mother who did actually kill someone at the end of the episode? (laughs) Was it the uh, uh, drug addict guy whose son likes to uh draw autopsies draw dead bodies and like cut into cats you know but bone saws can go through bones who would have thought yeah yep yep um yeah when they added the the kid when the kid went after the cat that's cat. What was, that's when i was like no yeah anyways that was a fair point to tap out in. Yeah, this will be one where, like, I'll go and when it's done, like, read a recap somewhere and find out just if I'm curious. But, yeah, this is a really, it's a very good cast. Um, but it's just, it does feel like, why? Why is this show? Yeah, and it's really frustrating to see this um, as work f- is uh, created from, um, I'm going to butcher her pr- the pronunciation of her name, um, but or Corian Birkenhoff. Mm-hmm. Brick, Brick, Brickenhoff, who's worked on, who is like co, who's worked on Elementary. She's worked on Jane the Virgin. She's worked on The Good Wife, and it's like this is this is the show that you you wanted to do. This one, well, who um, knows what she wanted to do? This is the show right. that got made. This is the show that got made. Correct. That's a, that's a fair distinction to make, but it's 
it's it's not good, guys. Um, I, I, I like you. I'm not going to be like circling back to this. I already like canceled it on my DV, <laughs> my new DVR season pass, just to make sure I recorded it. I just went, nope, I'm good. I'm you good. Did. You're Thanks, good. Guys. Well, I'm good. One that we're definitely circling back around to is Unreal season two of the Three Gorilla, and uh, we get okay. Well, I'm curious because we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. Yeah. How are you feeling about this season so far? About like the stuff with Quinn and Rachel, about the sort of new approach for Chet and and uh, to a lesser extent uh, Jeremy. And how do you feel about them bringing in new love interest guy who doesn't know anything about producing TV? I really liked the first two episodes. I got to watch these before they premiered. Um, so I'd seen them before they aired, which felt good because I was just like, I'm not going to have time to watch them otherwise. Because <laughs> uh, I was moving for those two weeks. Um, and I really enjoyed them. I liked a lot of what they set up in those first two episodes. Um, I liked how broad, but also just massively satirizing they were doing with the men rights activist type of stuff with Chet I thought was really interesting well interesting in a funny ridiculous sort of way um but then one of the things that I thought about while I was moving and that kind of came into play with this week's episode was why is any producer allowing two versions of the show being shot because it's double the expense <laughs> just from a logistics standpoint that was kind of boggling my brain a little bit um but I still like what the show's doing. I'm vaguely interested in what Coleman Wasserman, which is just so ridiculous <laughs> of a name, um, and where he's going to fit into everything. Uh, I wasn't quite sure, based on the second episode, how he was going to work, but I kind of like this idea of him and Rachel versus Chet and Quinn, which I feel like is the dynamic we're kind of setting up is the new guard against the old guard, which... I'm interested to kind of see play out, but I was also kind of wanting to see more of Rachel having to just destroy Quinn somehow individually after being promised the show and going, yeah, I'm going to take this away from you again. Sorry, not sorry type of thing. Um, so I'm excited to see what the show continues to do, but I feel like they're still establishing a premise for the season. And that can get really slippery. How, how are you feeling about it? Well, that's very interesting because the number one thing I do not have any interest in is Rachel versus Quinn. Mm-hmm. I don't, maybe it's just because there are so few female characters on TV this interesting, certainly in the anti-hero mold. I yeah. am not interested in watching them spend all their time tearing each other down. I would much rather see, let's see these women be amazing and at times vying against each other, but also understanding, having unique perspective on where the other one is coming from and being able to have a more complicated and interesting dynamic than Rachel versus Quinn or like Quinn finds out that Rachel betrayed her and now she's going to be going after, I mean like, there's... (laughs) And this show spends so much time highlighting this as well. There's so much crap that they're both having to deal with. uh, Just from, like, Rachel not being trusted to do the job she was hired to do, which is run the show, uh, by Quinn, but by Chet, by everyone at the network. Um, And then Quinn being doubted when it was very firmly established last season that Chet is an idiot. He has no idea how to do the show. Like, the idea of anyone 
uh, giving him reins on this sh- a show that makes this much money and costs this much to produce is absurd to me. Um, so I, I mean, I like this idea of um, of of Quinn making these mistakes, or sorry, Rachel making these mistakes, and her again choosing love interest over mentor, which is exactly what she did last year. Uh, and the, the idea of that being a trend for her and her using sex when she's not happy and in not necessarily the healthiest way, even if she intends well, means well by it. Um, so I think that's interesting. I just really hope they don't go for a Quinn versus Rachel thing. So the, that's the more interesting dynamic to you. And that's the, uh, the least interesting dynamic to me. So I think that's interesting. Well, no. And I, I think that's okay. Like, I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from and I even agree with it to a certain extent, but I feel like, that the Rachel Quinn issue is something that can also be resolved fairly quickly and might actually end up being resolved very quickly. That's true. Um, just because uh, money, dick, power. Kate. Yeah. Money, dick, power. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't get over that. I love that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that this is something that they could maybe get over quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think that it's maybe like her one or two episode thing and then they've figured out what they need to do to get rid of both Wasserman and mm-hmm. uh, Chet who I mean is just the worst Chet's just still the worst and yeah so I think it, I think I think your your concern is something I hope can be remedied quickly um, but if this is something that's going to get dragged out uh, I will probably be okay depending on the execution, but I don't want this to ruin the show for you either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we'll have to see where they go. Um, right. How did you feel about uh, the this? Because in this episode, we get Quinn. Like, we get to see what Quinn is like when she's Rachel, and yes. she's even more hardcore than Rachel. But I did have a little trouble with it, and that was because this is too easy to prove. Yes. Okay. No, this is a really good, this is a really good point that you bring up. Like, Darius is not going to be happy when he looks horrible because right. he, it's very easy, it'll be, when it airs, it'll be very easy to prove that she was right and he did this horrible thing to her. Yeah. Um, no, this is, no, this is a really good point because when I finished, when I finished the episode, I just, like, sent my friend Danielle a text that just said, Jesus, unreal. Um, because it's one of those big, big things that Unreal can do and does and normally has a much better like seam on it. But like you said, and to your point about like my, to both our points about the television production aspect of it, of just the cost, uh, this is something that's just like, as soon as he gets out of this bubble in another 12, 10 weeks, it's like, uh, dude, you, you, you sent a lady who was actually in foster care mm-hmm. <laughs> away because she lied about being in foster care, <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs> and yeah, it's going to be something that I hope that the show like deals with in season, basically that yeah. he finds out and like something happens, but I mean, he can't walk away cause the show's over. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure what their end game or their way out for this is, but I have to think that they have one. Yeah. Well, because it would destroy their credibility with anyone who would ever come on the show as a suitor again. Yeah. Because the idea is you come on the show as a suitor and it 
fixes your PR problem at least and gets you some publicity and like you get other deals off of it. You make a bunch of money is the idea. But this will destroy his PR even worse. Uh, And and so why would anybody trust him and come back on the show Um, or come on the show in the first place after after this if they don't address it so yeah like you said if they do address it that would be a completely different thing and i hope they do um we'll see where that comes from goes from here uh the next thing is there hasn't been a mention since the pilot i or the the premiere i'm thinking i'm thinking i i'm hoping that adam pops up in the next like two what do you think here's where i say i don't care about adam okay and i'm perfectly fine if he never shows up yeah, but I like <laughs> the wrench he could throw in because I like as as for Adam, I don't care. But yeah. what he means to Rachel, mm-hmm. I think could be very interesting. Maybe I don't know. Like I mean, she's dodging his calls, mm-hmm. so like I mean, I'm not entirely sure. We don't know where like she stands on him, mm-hmm. and they stand with each other, which is why I'm just kind of like. It could change up like a dynamic, but I think they're going to, I think probably like three episodes, maybe it's going to take just because, or at least two, two, but uh, just because they need to establish like the the Rachel and Wasserman Mm -hmm. uh, relationship enough to have him be able to throw, uh, throw a wrench into it. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And the character I don't want to see is Rachel's mom. Oh yeah. No, she's, she's not good. No. And I don't need her aligned with Jeremy and at all. I just don't I, need I'm, Jeremy. You saw how they were just like, Jer- you saw the interview that, uh, the yeah, okay, about how Jeremy was just going to be like, oh, we weren't going to use him again. <laughs> <laughs> we felt like he was done. And then they just went, well, you can't, you're going to need to use him again because we need him <laughs> in the show because mm. Chet's not hot enough. Even though the guy who plays Chet slimmed down a lot and actually got pretty, like, oily Clive Owen hot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you have any other uh, elements of of the show, the season you want to talk about, or or things you're looking forward to? Uh, I'm I'm still, like, firmly excited about Unreal. Um, I was really excited about it when, uh, like, they got a second season, and I'm still interested to see what they do. And I'm really interested to see them continuing to pick apart, uh, but also make more compelling, like, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and just, like, what they can do with that. And I'm always here for watching Quinn and Rachel manipulate people into <laughs> saying and revealing horrible things about themselves. Yeah. yeah. What no, about I, you? Anything? I'm, I'm still very much here for that, and I continue to enjoy the exploration of having a black suitor and what that means to the show and what that means specifically. And like they talk about here to Rachel, the fact that it is so meaningful to her, whether, whether or not it means anything to anybody else, but to her, it's really important. And so I like that they are continuing with that thread, not just using it as a gimmick for the show, but very clearly exploring their character dynamics with that. And just like how Rachel is justifying all this stuff to herself because she got, you know, black, the black suitor, which is something that she'd been pushing for for so long. And it's, this, you know, um, so I, I think it's, I, it's great that they are continuing to explore that. Um, I would like to see them explore more this willingness to push the envelope and completely change the dynamic of the show and, and go for racier, uh, imagery all, all the time when there's a black suitor. Yeah, no, that's actually a really compelling point that you're making uh, with this ever-blasting in addition to a black suitor 
is a really one thing that I hadn't thought of until you just said that. And that's really interesting. Yeah, the show needs to do more with that. We'll see what they do. But yeah. for now, what wins your weekend drama? Uh, I'll give it to Orange is the New Black. Um, just really great stuff this uh, this season, and I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I watched almost all of it in like three days, I think. <laughs> um, that sounds right to me, like three or four days. So that clearly won my week in uh, drama. What about you? What won your week? I'll give it to uh, Unreal. I'll give it to Unreal this mm-hmm. week. So it was a lot of fun, and I'm still really enjoying the season. Um, but now if you show notes, you can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, like the page, and start up a conversation there. You can find us on iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and we would appreciate any uh, ratings or reviews over there. It does help people find the show. You can also find us in Stitcher, where you can, again, rate or review the show over there. Um, and, of course, we're both on Twitter, I am at the Televerse and Noel you are at Noel RK and of course you can find Noel's writing all over online but specifically more re- more recently at tv.com for this past season you can find uh, my reviews of Veep over at the AV Club uh, as well so now we will take a break and uh, come back with friend of the show Ryan McGee of Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan to talk Gallivant I want it to be Vant it's Vant but I want it to be Vant anyways Gallivant right after this sing me the song Gallivant it's the only thing that'll make me feel better if I sing you the song will you shut up Way back in days of old, there was a legend... Oh, do for real! ...about a hero known as Gal... Sorry to interrupt, it's a very catchy tune and all that. It's a real earworm. It totally gets stuck in your head. But there's only so many times you can hear it. Don't know if you noticed, but four pirates walked the plank last week. Middle of the ocean, just walked right off. So what are you saying? What I'm saying is... We're gonna have to kill you if you sing the freaking song. What? It didn't win an Emmy. Now it's time to move along. But winter's not just coming. Well, it came. And then it went. Now it's back with this year's least expected big event. You mean? Ah! It's And the chef, the queen, the, the hero, and the hero's BFF. And the whole season ends with armies from Valencia, Hortensia, and Richard's land in one ginormous battle to decide who's gonna be the one true king to rule the whole entire... Way to blow it, you prat. It's a new season, so hang on to your sword. A new season, which you'll probably recall. A new season. Hello and welcome back to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, guys, I'm very excited. So much musical nerdery. It's going to be a lot of fun. Musical theater nerdery specifically, I should say. Uh, we're talking Gallivant. Uh, short, short-lived, amazed, but much longer-lived than I think any of us expected. Uh, musical comedy show on, on ABC. And joining us to, uh, to help us with this discussion about theater nerd and also, as I understand it, backstage technician... Uh, Ryan McGee. Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. 
Now, uh, you have a background in musical theater lighting, as I recall. I do. I basically uh, was terrible at everything else related to theater, but I, I loved it all the same. And I w did a lot of um, just sort of technical work in terms of just hanging lights and pointing them in a general direction and shuttering and dropping in gels and all that sort of stuff. And eventually a friend of mine asked me to do uh, his production of uh, In Trousers, which is the first musical that I ever did. And from there on, I did about 30 musical and or dance productions over the next five years, everything from Guys and Dolls all the way to a ballet set to Dark Side of the Moon. So I did all that sort of stuff. And I uh, just fell in love with the genre. I love things that I can't do, especially <laughs> when I have really absolutely no skill in them. Like if someone writes a really good essay, I get mad because I'd like to think I'm kind of okay with that. But when someone does a really good soft shoe, I'm like, bravo. Bravo <laughs> to you. <laughs> I don't feel threatened at all by this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, now I also have, have a long history of musical theater. Not only did I grow up in a household surrounded by it, because uh, just we would listen to a lot of musical theater and watch uh, films uh, based on, on musical theater. My, my father did community theater, and uh, you mentioned Guys and Dolls. I've played a lot of of pits. Obviously I'm a professional violinist as well, but like coming up through high school and, and, and college doing, like you said, guys and dolls, I've done guys and dolls at least two or three times. I probably still haven't memorized, even though I don't intend that is probably still in there somewhere. If you put yeah. the music in front of me, I could probably just start playing Havana right now. Um, <laughs> but I just have a really strong affinity for the genre. I felt like we should mention this up at the top. Noel, do you have any connection to musical theater or not your thing? Or what's your connection to this genre or this part of the artistic sphere? Uh, like Ryan, um, I probably couldn't carry a tune if you put it, put it in a basket for me. So I've never been able to participate, even like on a technical level with um, musical theater uh, in college. The most I did was help with the straight like stage productions. I didn't help with the musical productions because we bought in a guest director for those and he did his own thing. So I never participated in that regard. But um, I've always, I like musical theater, but I'm really, really picky about what I enjoy. Um, so stuff like and... Yeah, I'm just really picky, and some stuff is overplayed. Like, I was in college the same year that the Wicked cast album came out, and I was friends with all the theater kids. <laughs> I still can't listen to Wicked. I still can't listen to uh, Defying Gravity or Popular without wanting to scream. I heard it so much. Um, but I, I do enjoy good musical theater, that musical theater that like kind of gets stuck in my head in good ways. And Gallivant, for the most part, is one of those instances. So I was happy about that. Yeah. I was going to say, this could go either way then. Because yeah. when I am totally in the bag for Gallivant, it's not a surprise. But uh, it's encouraging that, that you mostly were enjoying your time. Uh, Ryan, uh, when when Gallivant was up for the time, we were talking about what, you know, if you were going to come back on, what would be something for you to talk about? And then yeah. I was, I'm not going to lie, I was just kind of waiting for Gallivant to get canceled because I think we all knew that was coming. It's like, if Gallivant gets canceled, Ryan could come on to talk about that because I, I know, uh, at least I think I know that you're, you're a fan of the series. Um, what was your reaction to it initially? And are you a fan of the series? Well, it was funny because the, the commercials came out and I thought, this looks like such a hot bag of garbage. I cannot wait to hate tweet this. <laughs> so, and then I, I got the, the screeners. I think there were four or five of the eight episodes that were there. Yeah. And I came out of it and my, I think the first line of my review was like, I tried to use the voice from the 30 by 30 commercials. Like, what if I told you that Gallivant was actually really good? 
and that was sort of the lead of my. I was blown away by how much I enjoyed it, by how uh, light on its feet it was, how clever it was, how it didn't take itself so seriously. But it was a very strong piece of musical comedy. It was self-aware, but wasn't sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It wasn't that kind of thing where we're having a lot of fun, but we're holding you at arm's length. And the songs, which are the lifeblood of of this genre, from Alan Menken, super catchy. And I think, you know, as good as I like the first season, I think the second season actually deepened all of it for reasons I think we'll get in there is one key thing they did really well in season two versus season one. But you're right. I felt like every episode I was like, I'm really glad I have this because I can't believe I'm getting any of this. And so, but it's just such a small slice of popular drama. It's not a popular medium. We like to think it is because we're surrounded by people who love this sort of stuff. And even if it's not, you know, even aside from a certain huge musical at the Richard Rogers Theaters in New York right now, there's not a lot of cultural penetration around musical theaters. I'm glad Paul Lee put this on the air. I can't believe it got two seasons, but I'm very glad for what we got. Absolutely. And I, I'm so on board with that. I reviewed, um, I was very excited when it came out. I saw the 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 um, screener uh, pretty early uh, when it was sitting around. And I, I, I'm curious what you guys think about this. I, I think I could argue and or, or not argue against the notion that Gallivant, uh, which is a, we should say for those who don't know, is a half hour musical comedy about the titular hero of Gallivant who has to go save his lady love uh, and fight the evil king. And it's, it's very uh, archetypal stuff. It's very, if you've seen The Princess Bride, or any of the movies the Princess Bride was making fun of and, you know, lovingly nudging as well, uh, then you know what this show is. High adventure, heroes on swordback, swashbuckling, all of that. That's what Gallivant is. Uh, So I watched the first episode um, and adored it, and I don't know that the show ever got better than the first sequence when Gallivant goes to storm in and save his his love from Madalena from being forced to marry the evil king and she she says actually you know what I kind of yes I love you but you know it's I get to be the queen if I marry this guy so I'm gonna do that uh I, I don't know if the show ever got better than that because it's so brilliant so wonderful as a deconstruction of the Disney movie of the the saving the damsel and everything uh, I don't know. What do you think, Noel? Do you think the show ever topped that moment? Uh, well, I think that moment really just encapsulates the tone of what the show's going for. And it tells you very straight up what they're doing. Uh, but I, I generally agree with Ryan that season two's stronger for me than season one was. Uh, just from an entertainment level. Um, even if it, even at eight episodes, I kind of struggled to get through the first season of Gallivant. So when season two came back, I was just like, oh, I'll, I'll try it. But uh, the deconstruction of the fairy tale and the heroic journey type stuff uh, was something that I just sometimes just struggled to click into just because I'd seen it done a number of different ways before. And so watching it played out with comedic musical numbers helped, but it didn't really totally like grab me into anything. So when they managed to like shake up the dynamics a lot after season one uh, with uh, King Richard and Gallivant off on their own and Gareth and Madalena together and that sort of stuff, uh, the show found a different gear that I was able to really respond to. Plus, picking up on what Ryan had said, season two 
way more self-aware than season one is. And I love that stuff, as I think I've mentioned a couple of times before with that kind of self-reflexivity. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good moment. I think that there are better moments, but it's a good encapsulation of what the show is. Yeah, and it's one of the things where watching the opening sequence, you're like, okay, I know what this is. Fair enough. And then that happens, and you're like, oh, so this is what it is. I'm even more on board. Uh, And I'm going to just add to the choir and say that I also think the second season is the distinct step up. Like, I really enjoyed the first season. I think it actually played better for me this time as, uh, like, I binged a bunch of it. Uh, And I think it actually worked better for me being able to go from episode to episode in a row because then if there's an episode that doesn't have a particularly weighty musical number, but just more, like, musical numbers that are fun but not as... You know, they don't stick as well and as sticky. Um, you are still thinking a little bit about the last really successful one, so it doesn't bother as much. At least for me, it didn't. Um, but uh, so I, but I, so I enjoyed season one even more rewatching it. But I do think season two is a is a real step up, and it starts with that it's a new season opening number where they're two kick right. line talking about their ratings. Uh, Ryan, what do you th- what do you think about about that about the the opening sequence of the pilot versus where the show would go? Well, anytime you can stick it to the cancellation bear, I'm all for it. <laughs> boo, cancellation bear, boo. The, the fact that they start off with that, and that Gallivant song is so damn catchy, and they mm-hmm. call it, and they, but I think they actually built out an equally catchy number to kind of reintroduce the themes. Now, season one, I think, had stronger original musical ideas, and Kate, you'd be a lot better to, to sort of speak on this than, than I would. Season two felt more like they were referencing familiar either tropes or songs that we already knew and kind of planted them in. So there wasn't as much originality in the music, but I think the overall narrative construction was better. And as much as I like the deconstruction of Gallivant in season one, I actually thought the heroic journey of Richard in season two was genuinely moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Timothy O'Munson does Yeoman's work in this thing. He is... You talk a lot of, I'm sure you've talked about this in the podcast, like people who will never be nominated for an Emmy ever and probably should. So Penny Dreadful just ended. Ava Green should have lots of trophies on her shelf. We'll never get it for this. Omudson has even a harder challenge on this because <laughs> there are enough people that looked at this at a commercial like me, thought hard garbage like me, never got into it. But his journey, I genuinely cared about that arc. I genuinely wanted him to be happy and having that and not Gallivant. Gallivant's really kind of the um, the Vinny Chase of this show. That's the best way. Like, he's the star, but he's not really the most interesting th- part about it at all for me. And once he was became a supporting role in his in a show that had his name, I think the show was stronger for it overall in season two. Absolutely, a- having him as because he was the best. Omenson was the best thing about the show. Almost immediately. And then that was not a surprise to anyone who was a fan of the Psych musical, uh, which I, of course, was. And had seen his comedic work on Psych when I saw that he was in Gallivant. It was one of the first things that actually piqued my interest about the show. Because I was like, oh, he is going to be perfect as the evil evil king. And we talk about, uh, um, you know, deserves awards. Just his beard. Just his beard alone, which is his actual beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah is worthy of some sort of, of no, you know, mention, special mention and award. Um, but then pivoting to him and, like, the show realizing, because they film, as I understand, they filmed it all kind of back to back to back. So it's not like they were going to be able to pivot mid-season one in a significant way. Um, but 
pivoting at the end of season one so that they could go into that for season two and have him be much more of the hero or the the protagonist that we were following the the arc for and certainly having the buddy comedy taking it from much less the straightforward hero's journey save the damsel to instead it's that but it's much more buddy comedy with these two guys um really very very much worked and and let them have you know let let Galvant just be the straight man and let uh, Omison just go for it as as the uh, ridiculous King Richard. Yeah, and it also freed up, as uh, as Noel said, uh, Vinnie Jones and Mallory Jansen to really play off each other oh, in interesting ways. Uh, they're so good. And they also could play as broad as you wanted, but that episode it really stands out where she went to visit her like high school friends mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. <laughs> just emotionally destroy her. Like She is a flesh and blood person. And in a weird way, Benny Jones giving her two sets of earrings attached to two sets of ears <laughs> is sweet in the world of Gallivant. So I liked that they, that they would at least include those notes. And like a show, another show that I thought was very broad, but also get the emotional notes. Something like Enlisted. I think it has that type of vibe to it. And that open heartedness is, you know, it's not a cynical show in any way, shape or form. And I gravitate towards that in 2016 in peak TV when everything feels so damn dour, this had the nerve, and I think there is a nerve about it, to be open, to be optimistic, and to be a little corny. I like corny. I like emotion. I like melodrama. I like all of those things. You have to sort of give yourself over to this genre. Musical theater is not something for the snobbish, and I'm a snob, but I would much prefer to do watch this than say no exit. <laughs> every day of the week <laughs> no i think that's a really good point and it may speak to why the show just kind of struggled to find an audience was that not only just because it was on abc and abc's programming is a little scattershot sometimes uh if it's not in sitcom mode or um, shonda mode uh it doesn't quite know what it wants to do so the the show struggled to fit in there but tonally it also just kind of struggled to fit in where, like you said, Ryan, everything can either be kind of dour or is this kind of hyper-paced, fast-burning, serialized programming. And there's no room for it to like kind of find a voice, really, within all the noise otherwise. And it is kind of nervy that it wants to be that kind of optimistic. And I think that gets to like something else where it refused even when it was being self-aware and cynical about the fairy tale genre in a lot of ways so numbers like um what was it that i was thinking of um maybe you're not the worst thing ever mm-hmm. is a really nice example of some of deconstructing and taking apart like the fairy tale love song and that's something that the show in season one did a really well and but still being kind of funny and joyful about taking it apart and finding something interesting to say within the joy is also i think really really important yeah there, there's a unfortunate train of uh very earnest comedies over the past uh several years that have been very short-lived and gotten terrible ratings but i have adored and that goes from ben and kate to enlisted to gallivant i mean i'm just Nobody's watching Jane the Virgin, but it gets great rate. It gets great critical, you know, acclaim, and so that's why it's still on the air. And I'm so grateful that it, I still have it. But I, I, I have a very big place in my heart for earnestness and for people who 
want to be kind and good and help others and are not cynical. Um, and I mean, you could even trace that to, to Parks and Recreation, which stayed on despite having terrible ratings for a long time because NBC didn't have anything better or that would get more ratings. And again, they had, they liked who was connected to, they wanted to be in business with those people. So, um, yeah, I, I'm going to almost always have time in my viewing for an earnest show uh, that is, has no qualms uh, with trying to be about people trying to be happy and not constantly destroying their lives. Um, and the notion that the best television is dark, the best television is gritty. Um, it's just very limited as far as I'm concerned. So I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are both fans of many of these different shows with, with that kind of optimism to them. But, uh, but it's certainly one that I just, I, I never tire of. I never, if I, if I am going to pop on an episode of Gal, I don't have to wonder, mm, do I really want to watch an episode of Gallivant before I go to bed? Unless I'm worried about a song getting stuck in my head, I'm going to be down for it. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you're absolutely right. There is a, and I've talked about this in another podcast. There's, there's an unfortunate association between, uh, correlation between darkness and quality, that there's a certain way that a show is supposed to look in order to be taken seriously whether from a critical and or awards perspective. So we give a lot more weight to a show like Fargo than Fresh Off the Boat, although I'd, I'd, I'd rather watch the, 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 the latter than the former. I like both of those things, but I think that there needs, I need both of those in my diet. I don't know how you can just watch hour after hour of, of dour, you know, male anti-hero Television, it just doesn't. That's the thing that tends to be rewarded, both from a critical and an awards perspective. And so that's we get a lot more of. And the idea of taking chances, especially on a major network like ABC, I think should be commended. You know, Fox, you know, has a lot of shows that are really interesting and get canceled, but at least they put them on the air. So I want to give ABC at least some credit for putting this show on the air. It's a business; they couldn't attract it. I, you probably could have predicted it, but it got two seasons, so. And in, 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 in the second season, we get a song like um, "World's Best Kiss," which I think is one of my perfect yeah. encapsulations of what that of that is, because it is a it's the deconstruction that we've talked about, and it ends so beautifully. It knows what it's talking about, and it doesn't care, you know. <laughs> so it, it it just wraps you in that world, and the only way to tell that particular story is through song, and that's the 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 lesson that is so often missed, I think, in musical theaters. And people start saying because they, speaking, won't do it justice. And if you do that right, I mean, once more, feeling the Buffy episode was literally about that. That was the driving force of that entire episode. It, it took that very notion and baked it into the story of that episode. And a lot of times in this one, people have to sing. So if it's weird to see Richard singing to Tad Cooper, but he means it. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> is emotionally true for him. In that moment. And how could you not love Tad Cooper? So I understood that intimately what he was going for. I'm so glad Tad Cooper came up because that might be one of my favorite things of season two. <laughs> how could it not be? I mean, the, tr the great tragedy. I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's probably a, a good and a bad thing. If there was a season three, the, let's just assume, let's just go on the, you know, we don't know television, but maybe you guys do. Maybe you have the sheets in front of you. We don't know what the production value for Gallivan was. Let's just oh, assume... It had to have been an expensive show because writing and recording music is expensive. So yeah. so they would not have had any money 
for a dragon. I was going to say, like, they do not have a Game of Thrones VFX budget. Let's no. <laughs> Game of Thrones can't afford their dragons, so certainly Galvan was not going to. The dragon would have totally been just represented through a fisheye lens with a graphic overlay of some sort, like the gel. It would have mm. a different kind of lighting gel to denote its eyes, and that would be how they got away with it. It would be like, oh, I'm sorry, Ted Cooper. Looks like you can't come along on this one. Sad sound. And then we've moved on. And then he shows back up at the end with some fire. Yeah, he would huff and protest. A table would be sound fire and they'd go their merry way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the the music, the musical numbers and the the progressions of them, because I I, I find it interesting that you guys were connecting more with the, or at least Ryan, with some of the music from season one, because for me, actually, uh, I think both seasons, uh, certainly the first season starts out stronger and then you can feel a little bit of at least what seems to be pressure of time and not as much creativity as the yeah. season continues. Well, episode like seven has moment in the sun, five variations. So yeah, I think yeah, you're there's, right. There's that. But even like, I was so excited at some of the cast when they said, Oh, weird Al's going to be, out. I was like, Oh, that's great. And then they gave them, Hey, Hey, we're the monks. We get it. You're ripping off. Hey, Hey, we're the monkeys. It's not funny once. It's really not funny twice in that episode. And then again in the season finale, uh, so so I actually struggled with some of the so, music in the second half of the first season. And I actually found the music in the second season, for me at least, uh, more, it stuck with me more. I guess we can talk about a number like, so off with his shirt, you know, the big number from, from episode <laughs> one. I mean, that's just it's raining men, right? That's just a reskin yeah. of it's raining men. So I guess yep. yeah. from that, they the songs felt more instantly familiar and, and catchy. And from that perspective, absolutely. I guess I was missing more of the originality of season one where I felt like I was like Mencken was giving me some Mencken songs as opposed to his twist on existing uh, genres, sometimes even his own music. Yeah. In, in, but they were very good. I like I like the music in both seasons sort of very much. They're, they're hits and misses across the board, but a lot more hits than misses, any more than we would rightfully expect from a show that had this many songs. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, like, I miss, like, episodes four and five of season two i just never watched them and i didn't find them before we recorded but i saw the back half of six through ten and when we got to episode nine the which is the battle of the three armies and they made us sit through do the doo-doo oh i like the the doo-doo it goes on forever and it's just i can't deal with it it's not good (laughs) (laughs) i think that's so funny because i love that one that's one of the ones that i immediately can say and still have memorized so that's funny. Yeah, okay, no, Ryan, I... come down to the great to-do debate. Oh, I'm not going to even wade into this one. This is, you know, in 2016, everything's politicized. I'm not going to make this politicized. <laughs> no, forget it. <laughs> you can't drag me into your, 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 your hate speech. Okay, well, then I'm going to just say the one for me that I w- was a little hard for me was when we go to Sid's hometown and was like, ah, oh, we're Jewish for an entire <laughs> musical number. And, oh, in season one? Yeah. Yeah. That's I like what's the Vinnie Jones one where he he comes up with terrible metaphors the entire time. I adore that number. That and one's could, pretty fun, yeah. I can't I can't I can't find it in there. I was looking it up uh, before here. I couldn't get it. that one. I love a yeah, ton. That is um, really good. That's a really really good one. That felt original and I always admired every time Vinnie Jones sang. I always wondered if like behind the scenes he was like, I cannot believe my agent convinced me to do the show, <laughs> but he still committed to it and he was he was great. I thought he was fantastic. Um, 
I like to think that he was just he did this because he did three episodes of Arrow and just went, nope, I'm good. This this <laughs> is what I want to do now. It's Galavant. <laughs> yes. Um, I think the only dour note for me in season uh, two was probably the Giants versus Dwarves episode, which I should have liked. Yeah, but, but that, no. that one didn't do so well. Um, we haven't even talked at all about Karen David. I feel like that's a... Um, we should. A little bit of a travesty here because she has a very hard role. It doesn't help that she's caught up, you know, she's basically held sexual prisoner for most of season two, which is a little bit disturbing, but... Uh, and she has she's brainwashed uh, for for a great deal of it, but she gets to go when it's broken. What's the uh, sort of like the, the, the princess that won't accept her invite? I liked that number quite a bit. The kind of rock and rollish, you know, mm-hmm. punk but not quite punk uh, number, just because it broke up the musical palette of season two. So I really appreciated that one as well. I mean, I was always, I was again because of the buddy story that was put in the heroic journey. It didn't. It felt like there was there, the show didn't need to have as many songs in season two to keep me as interested as it may have in season one, which were a lot of sort of comedic scenes strung together, and occasionally there was a really good song. Uh, to save them, whether it be uh, uh, Darren Evans and um, Sophie McShera as the uh, as the cook and the servant kind of falling <laughs> I can share my life with you is so good. It's so it's good. So good. They have twelve <laughs> babies, and maybe one of them will actually survive. Whatever the line huh. is, there it's unbelievable. Right. <laughs> and they're just kind of written out of season two, if I remember correctly, right? They just kind of just. Yeah, they disappear until, like, the very end when their house is literally in the middle of the battlefield for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. Well, yeah and, I... and we should mention, of course, with their 13 children, she she does get to keep the first woman, the first the first girl, baby. So, and the rest are going to the White Walkers. So oh, I, that's true. <laughs> I'm always going to enjoy any show with that sense of humor. Um, yeah, and the... Um, we talk about Karen David. I do think I think you hit on the most significant part of that for me, Ryan, which is this is a really challenging character to make yeah. particularly compelling. And I think she does a very good job with it. I mean, at least they start out by giving her the having to play the betrayal in the beginning of season one. But like, yeah, they certainly didn't know what to do with her for a large stretch of season two, which is why they have her be brainwashed. But at least they do let her mostly overcome that herself. Yeah, and they, uh, we do have the great number with her and Madeline, I Don't Like You, near the end, which is like a, a prototypical cabinet battle from Hamilton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> albeit not quite as good, as, but then, you know, I'm not trying to compare the two. Just put your pen, your virtual pens down, interwebs. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, even just having, have we not met yet? Like, like, I always appreciate when shows are doing that. She's also part of my absolute, like, the funniest moment for me is when she sings at the, at the end of World's Best Kiss and she falls asleep and she wakes <laughs> up and the chef is still there. He's like... You're still here. You haven't given me your effing amulet, amulet yet. I had to pause it and just spit everywhere. It was so damn funny. And the show yeah. could be really, 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 not corny funny. It, did, it could do corny funny. But just genuinely laugh out loud, funniest thing on TV that week funny. Yeah, and I loved when they would just go for I love that they just went for the swearing and beeped it out because it, it added so much bite to the delivery and like it worked a lot better. That moment is nowhere near as funny if he doesn't swear and have it beeped out. Agree. Agree yeah. totally. Yeah. Well, we've are, we're approaching the end of our time, uh, but do we have any final moments we want to mention or characters or, or musical numbers? Uh, Noel, I'll throw it to you. Sure. Um, when I went back to a main line, like the back half of season two, uh, I remember how much I just really, really loved Mallory Jansen on this show. 
And so when it ends with her wanting to become like the Dark Queen, I felt so upset that we weren't getting a third season. Because <laughs> I just wanted to see her going like more and more evil. And just she was always a pleasure to watch. And I think she was always kind of, along with Karen David as well, the, they were both ended up kind of being stealth MVPs of the show. And I just, I couldn't get enough of her performance in particular. And I've already mentioned my best song, which is the Chef and Gwyn's If I Could Share My Life With You, because it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, another person I have not mentioned yet, uh, Claire Foster is Roberta Steinglass, the uh, the love interest for Richard oh, in season two. Oh, she's really good too, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, uh, she yeah she really um, sold that. It's a hard thing to sort of, you know, believe, because the, the, there's a... Sometimes a show will throw two people together and they've got less than no chemistry. And you bought the sort of tentative romance between the two. It was like two teenagers, like awkward teenagers getting together, even though they were adults. Also, she had that great moment in like, this is a dark season where she's trying to sing her song, but the camera keeps moving away from her as if it can't <laughs> be bothered with her storyline. She's like, I'm going to have to be a spinster with these cats and even you don't care. Uh, very funny moment uh, for her. Spinster Island, man. Spinster Island with... Here's a cat. Get on the boat. It's just like, oh god. Which is my fear. That that's my fear. I this is gonna be. I, I mean, I maybe this is just me being optimistic. This this has cult classic written all over it, right? Yeah. If well, it can stay in the the Hulu's, Netflix's, Amazon Prime's, whatever we have, twenty years beamed directly into our cerebral cortex, people will find this. I think there's people like us who are just into the genre are going to find it because there's such a paucity of this type of show. It will live on, I hope. Cop Rock is out on DVD. Okay, fine. You let's, proved your point. Let's get Gallivant. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I would also, uh, for another person to mention, uh, maybe I just enjoyed this character more than you guys did based on to do, but um, Robert Lindsay is so much fun as Wormwood. Um, and, and the fact that he's an evil villain taking trying to take over things, but he does actually care about his day job, and he has a very he has very strict thoughts about the the color scheme and like the witch flowers, and he would like to rule over everyone, and he's evil, but you know he also wants to do right by his clients. Uh, I think the balance of that character that character should not have worked. I should not have enjoyed that character, but I think the combination of the writing and then Lindsay's delivery also, I think worked worked really well for that um and i for as far as other songs or moments to mention the uh i, I pretty much enjoyed anything they had richard sing or the jester as well um so i a little love for those um like comedy gold i i liked more than i should have uh because of the delivery and uh when they would bring the jester back out like in the finale to to recap everything you know um, I, I enjoy it again. It's that meta awareness we've already talked about, but Galavant is just a silly, ridiculous show that is more interested in being a less, a not political money Python than it is in being smash. And I will take that every day of the week. I can't believe you brought up such a, ter such a terrible word to end this podcast. I apologize. Uh, Let's never speak of the S word again. How dare uh, you? Okay. On that note, bleep uh, that one out too. Never mind the swear and Galavant bleep out smash. Absolutely. Um, well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming in to talk Galavant with us. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Sure. You can uh, find me with my other podcast, Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, which I do with Variety's Mo Ryan. Uh, in the fall, I'll be back covering Saturday Night Live for RollingStone.com. And you can find me on Twitter at TV McGee. 
Awesome. Thank you again, Ryan, so much for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. And that's a do-do-do-do-do-do. You can say adieu to those you owe and I owe you to any do-do-do-do-do. Your Highness, that's your cue. You know what to do. Time to use my new do 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 do. Oh my god, I can do magic. Big day.